My name is David, one of the pastors here. And today we're going to carry on in our series on the book of Revelation. Uh, we're going to be looking in particular at Revelation chapter 19. Now, just as a reminder, the story of Revelation is a story of just that, Revelation. It, uh, it reveals what is hidden. And the book of Revelation is an apocalypse, which has nothing really to do with the Vietnam War or anything like that, but it's an unveiling. That's what the word apocalypse means. It's an unveiling of things that were hidden. Um, it's an exposure to show that things are not as they seem and that there's a lot more going on around us than we realize. And at the end of the day, Revelation is a revelation of Jesus Christ. It's all about Jesus Christ. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ, by Jesus Christ, about Jesus Christ. And as uh, Pastor Brad has been uh, teaching us over these weeks, is that Revelation is also an epic. It's this sweeping description of all history, of all reality. And it's coming to a climax. The story is coming to a climax, especially in this chapter that we're going to be looking at and in the remaining chapters of the book of Revelation that we're going to look at over these next few weeks. And so, Revelation 19 is a pivotal chapter in the story. And so my invitation to you today is to enter into Revelation chapter 19. Because in this chapter, we find two things. We find love, and we find war. And love um, is, is captured in this amazing scene. Um, it's a wedding, and it's the uh, wedding supper of the Lamb. And so we're going to look at uh, Revelation 19, and we'll, probably, we'll divide it in, into those two parts. So let's look at Revelation chapter 19, um, and we'll read verses 1 through 10, and then we'll read the rest of the chapter later on. Okay, so... Revelation chapter 19, uh, beginning in verse 1. After this, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who, invite, who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Well, then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do this. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is a spirit of prophecy. Jesus, this is your word. It's all about you. 
And so we pray that you would speak to us. You are the word of God. So speak to us your truth. Speak into our hearts and grant us courage to respond to what you say to us this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so if you're listening to this, um, what word kept showing up in this passage? Now, I'm speaking to a camera, so I really can't hear you. But I guess if you were actually here, you would say the word hallelujah. Because hallelujah shows up four times, four times. Hallelujah. Now, what does this word even mean? It's a word you hear quite often. But what does it mean? Well, it literally means you praise Yahweh. Hallelujah means you praise. Yah is a shortened form of the sacred name of God, Yahweh. Now, in Christian circles, you hear a lot of people saying, hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. So you think you can find this word all throughout the Bible, but actually you don't. In fact, in the New Testament, this is the only place you find it, which is kind of surprising. Um, you do find it in the Old Testament, though, and you usually find it in the Psalms. Now, in particular, there's a group of Psalms that are called the Hallel Psalms. Um, and they are Psalms um, from Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. Now, why is this all important? Well, these Psalms were often sung at key festivals, in particular, the festival, the Passover festival. And so you would, um, you would uh, sing Psalms 113 and 114 before you would have a Passover meal. And then you would sing Psalms, you know, Psalm 115 or to, to 118 after the meal, which I think is kind of interesting because if you read in the book of Mark, in the Gospel of Mark, you read about Jesus and his disciples after having, after having celebrated Passover together, we read these words, quote, after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is Mark chapter 14, verse 26. Now, they probably sang one of these psalms. Now, there's one more thing that's really important about these psalms, is that these psalms, because they're connected to Passover, these psalms um, were a celebration of freedom. They're a celebration of God in his grace, rescuing Israel out of slavery in the land of Egypt and bringing them and setting them free. And these, these psalms, especially during Passover, would bring to mind, um, would, would, would bring in, in a person's heart this desire for freedom, that God would do the same again, that he would deliver his people um, from Babylon, or he would deliver his people, in this case, from Rome, from, from Roman oppression. And so we read in Revelation chapter 19, we have this fourfold cry of hallelujah. Why are they saying hallelujah? Why are they praising God? Well, we read that salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her immorality. Okay, so if you remember this, a prostitute represents Rome, right? It represents uh, the world that's persecuting uh, Christians. It represents the dominant culture all around. It represents you know, all the things that pull us away from God. And so what this passage is saying, we're saying hallelujah because we have been rescued from this, right? And, and hallelujah is also sung because a new meal is about to happen. Uh, this meal is not celebrating God's Passover deliverance of Israel from Egypt, but no, no, it's, it's a different meal. It's, it's, it's not about Passover and the lamb. It is about this greater Passover, and the greater lamb, the lamb of God, who, who um, through his life, death, and resurrection, rescues his people. 
And, and this new meal takes place in what, what is described as the wedding supper of the Lamb. The wedding supper of the Lamb. We read that in verse 9. Now, here's the thing. Even in our cynical age, weddings are still a big deal. Um, even with the reduction of guests because of COVID, uh, weddings are, are still pretty special. Uh, they're still happening. Uh, they're a lot cheaper because <laughs> you can only have 10 guests, which is, I think some people don't mind. Um, but it's a big business. Uh, it is a really big business. Um, it's uh, apparently it's a $50 billion a year industry. And in my lifetime, I've probably officiated well over 100 weddings uh, as, a, as a pastor. But here's the thing. Every one of them feels special. They really do. And what makes them so special is, is this. I think, you know, weddings are God's design, right? It is God's design. It is God's idea for a man and a woman uh, to enter into covenant together, into a relationship that is closer than any other relationship. And w- whenever you have a wedding, there's this deep desire to celebrate. And whenever you want to celebrate, there's always this deep desire to have food, right? There's always going to be a meal. Um, and in our passage, this is what we find. And it's a huge celebration. In fact, it is the celebration of all celebrations. It is described as a wedding supper of the Lamb. And the scope of the marriage is cosmic. It is the marrying of heaven and earth. It is a picture of the marrying of of, of Jesus and his people coming together. And throughout the Bible, again, a wedding is is, is, um, this imagery of God's people being married to God is a strong one, especially if if you read through the Old Testament. Um, Even Jesus teaches about this in his parables. In, In Matthew 22, Jesus tells a story about the marriage Uh, and a wedding feast, a marriage feast, in which the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gives a wedding feast for his son. And the picture is this, you know, picture of the father throwing a big party for his son who's going to get married. Well, in this passage, we get the wedding supper of the lamb. Now, what does this teach us? What is this picture of, of, um, of the, the, this, this wedding and the celebration and this meal. What does this say to us here now today in Coquitlam? Well, a couple things, a few things. One, the wedding tells us that, that um, because of Jesus, the bridegroom, that you and I have been set free, that we've been set free, we are being set free, and one day we'll be completely free that we belong to Jesus, or as uh, in the Song of Songs, um, I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. And what this means is that Jesus, ha- Jesus alone has a claim over your life. He created you, you exist because of Jesus, but Jesus has a claim over your life. But that, what that means is that nobody else does. Nobody else does. And uh, we read in Ephesians 5 that Jesus loved the church He loved the church. He gave himself up for her that he might make her holy. And so that's why the multitude cry out hallelujah because we're ready to enter into a feast, not just for an evening, not just for a week, not just for a month, but that will go on forever. And here's the thing. Some of you are feeling, I would guess, some of you are feeling quite trapped these days. There's a lot of people that uh, maybe laying claim to your life, to your time, to what you do, to how you see yourself, how you, uh, yeah, everything about yourself. And a lot of us are longing for freedom. 
we're longing for rest, we're longing for peace, we're longing for joy, but we just feel pulled in a hundred different directions. Well, what this passage is teaching us, and we read this all throughout scripture, it is for freedom. It is for freedom that Christ came to set you free. And so it's a picture of freedom. Secondly, the, the wedding tells us just how much Jesus loves you and how much he loves me. Now, if, if you're a Christian and, and I say to you, you know, Jesus loves you, and you're like, yeah, I know Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me. So you know all these things. But I think most of the Christian life is you and I learning to really believe what we say we believe. Now, we say we believe that Jesus loves us, but this is a picture. What a picture of, of, of love in this passage. And here's the thing. We know that, okay, we know that maybe Jesus, he loves us as, as his friend, or he loves us as uh, he's our Lord, and we are his disciples. Um, yeah, but this is, a, this is a picture of deep, deep intimacy. It is a picture of Jesus is our, is our bridegroom. And we are the bride. I mean, this is pretty intimate stuff. And it, 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 um, it reminds us that Jesus is a lover of our soul. As the old hymn goes, Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me, underneath me, all around me, is the current of thy love, leading onward, leading homeward, to thy glorious rest above. So this is a love, to quote another hymn, that will not let us go. We are Jesus's bride. And I'll tell you, honestly, as a man, I struggle with this, this intimate imagery. I really do. Um, but it, it's something that we're, we're called to lean into. I mean, we, we, it comes across in, in Scripture. This is what the Bible teaches us. And there's a guy named um, Bernard of Clairvaux who lived in the 12th century, and he spent most of his life preaching through one book in the Bible, one book, and that was Song of Songs. And uh, he, he, he preached on this and he wrote on this because he just wanted to meditate on the love of Jesus for his people. The other thing that this passage teaches us is that, um, that we're called to be loyal. And there's lots of things that will threaten our faithfulness. And, and it's interesting, throughout the Bible, whenever God's people turn away from the lover of their soul. The language that's used is the language of adultery. I mean, read, read the book of Ezekiel. It shows up uh, everywhere. And even Jesus says, you know, you can't serve. You can't serve both God and money, right? You have to choose one. Which reminds us, the, the, the other point is that um, you and I need to do whatever we can to keep this love alive. And whenever the lives of married couples get too busy, too complex, the marriage suffers. Uh, and Jesus warns the church in Ephesus way at the beginning of Revelation, you know, don't forget your first love. And so sometimes we can be so busy even doing the things of God for God, being busy in the church, that we can miss God. Isn't that sad? Um, but we need to cultivate space uh, for God and to cultivate this, um, this love that he has for us. Okay, so that's the picture of love. Uh, now let's get to war, because uh, we, we not only find love, but we also find war. And we see it in, in beginning in verse 12. So look at verse, um, or verse 11. It says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges 
and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. He says, come gather for the great supper of God to eat the yikes, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and all the riders and all the flesh of all men, both free and slaves, small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Yikes. Well, there's a contrast, eh? Okay, so what is this saying? Just very quickly, um, this last section opens uh, or begins with the word opened, and this, if you've been following the book of Revelation, you know this is a really important word. Uh, When you come across the word opened, It says, then I saw heaven open, standing open. Before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. Now, open is an important, because whenever you come across the word opened, it opens this new section. And this basically is the fifth time we come across this word, and it opens up the last section of the book of Revelation. Um, So what do we see? What do we see in this final window? Well, we see a person. That's all we see. And we are commanded to look. Notice this. (laughs) Heaven's open and it says we're called to to look. We're not called to go. We're not called to to do anything except look. Fix your eyes upon Jesus. And that's that's something we need to remember is that heaven has got nothing to do with Philadelphia cream cheese and wearing wings and floating in clouds. Heaven is all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. History is all about Jesus. Um, Reality is all about Jesus. Your life, my life, it's all about a person, Jesus Christ. And the trajectory of our life, everything is heading towards one point where we will look, we will see him, we will behold his face. Wow. And everything moves in that direction. In the beginning of Revelation, we come across John saying, Jesus is coming. In the end, we hear hear three times Jesus saying, I am coming. The beginning of Revelation, John says, for the time is near. In the end, we read, for the time is near. In Revelation 19, we look and the time is coming. Jesus is coming. And Jesus is riding on a white horse. Now, what's the big deal about the white horse? Well, in the Greco-Roman world, when a king rides a horse, he is riding to war. And so what's about to happen here? Well, the climax of the story is about to happen here. 
um, we are reading about what is sometimes called the last battle. The last battle. Now, it's called the last battle, but that's a bit of a misnomer because if you look closely at the passage, there's no battle. Uh, there's no fight. There's no battle that had been fought. If you read uh, verses 19 to 21, it seems like the battle's over even before it began. So what's going on here? Well, as it turns out, there was a battle that was fought, that was won, but it took place at a different time. It took place on the cross. And that's what Paul's saying in, in Colossians uh, chapter 1, when he talks about the cross, he, he says, on the cross, Jesus, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And so in this passage, what we're reading is that all is being made right in the world. Jesus rides, and he locks up the enemies of God. We read about the beast or the false prophet in the next chapters to come. We're going to read about the dragon, but we'll read about that. We'll hear about that next week. But let, what can we take from this, this picture of war? Well, okay, a few things. One, uh, we have to ask the question, so why does Jesus win this battle? Why does he win this battle? Well, he wins the battle because of who he is. I can't understand. I really can't understand. I was thinking about this this week. I can't understand how anyone could read the Bible and say, you know what, I think Jesus, he's just like a really good teacher, like a lot of good teachers. He was just a man. He just kind of taught. And we can learn some good things like we can learn from a lot of teachers. How can you read Revelation 19 and come to that conclusion? <laughs> he, is, he is so much more than a great teacher. Uh, Jesus wins because nothing on heaven and earth can withstand him. Nothing can defeat him. He's not just a teacher. He's not just a prophet. He's not some angel or something like that. He is God. He is God. And what do we read about him? Well, we read a number of things. One, he is faithful and true. Jesus is faithful from beginning to end. What that means is that we can trust him. And that is a big deal for a lot of people. A lot of people, can I trust God? Yes, you can trust him. Jesus says, you can build your life on me. I am the rock on which you can live. Because he is faithful and true, it means he will judge justly. He will make all things right in the end. We read that his eyes are a flame of fire, that his eyes are pure and purifying. And then what does that mean? Well, it means that Jesus, he, he cuts through all the lies of this world. He cuts through all the facades, all the, the striving and strutting and all these. He cuts through, he cuts through our Instagram posts. He cuts through the filters. He sees us as we truly are. Uh, he gets to the core of who we are. He cuts right through because he is true. And we read, upon his head are many diadems. I love that because um, if you remember way back in, in, I think in chapter 12, where you got this dragon on the dragon, it says the dragon has 10, 10 diadems, 10 crowns, which is a lot of crowns. And 10 means, you know, it's, it's quite a powerful number. On Jesus, he's just got lots of crowns. <laughs> he's just got lots of crowns. And what this means is that it's a, it's a picture of, of, of complete abundance and sovereignty and power over all things, that Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And I look at this and I think, oh man, my picture of God is way too small. Then we read, he has a name written on him that no one knows except himself. That's interesting, because in the ancient world, Names actually mean something. Uh, they reveal your character. In the ancient world, to know somebody's name, 
you can exert control over that person. Interesting. This simply means that no one can control Jesus, that he is sovereign, he is God. But it also means this, is that there's no end to us knowing about Jesus. There's never going to be a point It's like, I am now a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. No, you're never going to get there. You're never going to get there because there's always something new to learn. You will never plumb the depths of who Jesus is. And I tell people this when they get frustrated with Christianity. They say, oh, it seems so shallow. It seems so simple. No, no, man. You can, if you want to study art, study Jesus and art. If you want to study science, study what Jesus has to say about science. Like You cannot plumb the depths of how Christianity intersects with every aspect of reality. It says he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. Wow. What does this mean? Well, I think two things. One, Jesus wins because of his own shed blood on the cross. He is stained with his own blood. But I also think it's a picture of justice. And if you, there's an echo of Isaiah 63 in here. Because of Jesus, everything's going to be made right in the end. And this is really important because a lot of people get frustrated. I mean, I get frustrated. If I see someone who's, who's a murderer or a pedophile or done horrible things in his, in his lifetime or in her lifetime, and they get away with it, and they die peacefully in their sleep, some, you know, tyrant over who did horrible things to a nation, you think of Joseph Stalin or, I mean, our heart cry is this, is that, man, God, you need to make all things right. If they do not experience justice now, if they get away with it, may they not get away with it. There needs to be justice. You need to make all things right. Well, that's what this passage is teaching us, is that God will, the one who judges justly, will make all things right in the end. It says Jesus wins because he is a word of God. Right? In the beginning was a word, and the word was God. Um, when you read in John chapter 1, this picture of, of, of Jesus is the word and who is God, right? And so if you want to know what God is like, look to Jesus. If you want to know the heart of God, look to Jesus on the cross. And Jesus wins because he is king of kings and lord of lords. Caesar's not king. Pandemic's not king. Our government's not king. Jesus is lord. Now, how does he win the battle? How does he win this battle? It's interesting, in the, in the passage, something interesting shows up. He wins by, because he's got one weapon. And we read um, that from Jesus' mouth comes a sharp sword. Jesus wins by speaking. And you see that all through his life and ministry. Um, when faced with a, a demon-possessed person, Jesus says, come at him. And the demon comes out. Um, when, when in the middle of a storm and his disciples are panicked, ah, oh, we're going to sink, he says, looks at the, uh, the storm, he says, peace, be still. And everything calms down. A paralytic's brought to him. He says, get up, walk. A, 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 a young girl who had died, he says, he's, he, he raises her up to Letha Kum, wake up. Jesus speaks on the cross. He says, it is finished. Now, we live in a world where things are quite confusing. There's lots of words flying everywhere, and a lot of people are feeling anxious and restless. It's such a confusing world. I was at a restaurant the other day, and the news was on. And I haven't listened to the news like on TV for ages. And, 
And it was just, it was so annoying. And it was so confusing. And so Jesus is the voice that stills the storm, that brings light where there's darkness. He brings clarity where there's fog. And man, we need to hear his voice. And because when we hear his voice, we have perspective. Daryl Johnson in his uh, book, Discipleship on the Edge, tells this story, and it really resonated with me this week when I read it. He's talking about this mom who, um, whose son was heading off to university um, and going to live on campus, and she was just scared. She was so scared, so she, she calls him up. Pa- Daryl was there, her pastor, and said, Daryl, don't you realize what's gonna go on? You know, my son's going off to university, and you know, do you know how, how many dangers there are out in university? What kind of teaching he's gonna come across and what's gonna go on in dorm and in residence? And Daryl said, well, hey, hang on. Well, you know, you've, you've, you've taught your son well. Uh, you've raised your son well. He knows Jesus Christ. Um, he wants to follow Jesus. You've prayed for him. You've commissioned him, and you've handed him into Jesus' hands, so trust Jesus. And she says, well, yeah, I trust Jesus, but do you not realize all the dangers that there are out there and what could happen? And finally, Daryl, he cuts through. He says, he goes, "Um, you think darkness is greater than Jesus, don't you? She's like, no. Uh, Yeah, you do. (laughs) Again, my my youngest daughter's heading off to university this fall, going to live on campus. And I'm like, ah. But I'm often anxious, and so I have to ask myself the question, do I trust Jesus? Do I trust him? Sometimes I'm overwhelmed with fear and anxiety and all the what-ifs in my thoughts. And so I need to hear God's word today. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, and behold, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. You know, things are not as they seem. Jesus is much closer than we realize. He's good, he's loving, he's true, he's trustworthy, he's triumphant, and he's inviting you to fix your eyes upon him today and find rest for your weary souls. All right, so that's Revelation chapter 19. Let's pray. Jesus, this is all about you, and we pray that you would teach us to believe the things that we say we believe. We say we trust you, may we truly trust you. We say that you are sovereign over our lives. May you be sovereign in our lives. We say that our identity is found in you. May our identity be found in you and not in all these other things that distract. May may we experience just how deep your love for us really goes. And so we create space for you this week. Have mercy upon us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks.